Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. Let me invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of John. Took a bit of a hiatus from that over the Advent season and the first bit of this year, Uh, but we want to pick it back up now, the Gospel of John. Uh, If you haven't been with us, if you're new, uh, visiting with us this morning, uh, we've been going through the Gospel for at least a year, year and a half, I think. And uh, this semester, we're actually going to bring it to a close. So uh, that's exciting. Uh, We've learned so much from it, and I'm thankful to God for it. And uh, this morning, John 17. Three weeks in John 17 for us this morning, just verses 1 through 5. So that's what we're going to read together and then study. So John 17, beginning in verse 1. John records, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that when Jesus had spoken these words, it's the Olivet Discourse in John 13, 14, 15, 16. When Jesus had spoken these words, he then lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is incredible. So, let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word as always. And we do ask now that you would do precisely as our Lord and Savior has asked here in John 17, that you would glorify your Son and that through Him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would also bring glory to yourself in the preaching of your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, dear ones, what would it do for you if you could hear Christ praying for you. If you could hear the glorified Christ praying at all for whatever was on His heart. What should it do for us to hear Him before the throne of God above making what is most properly the Lord's prayer? As I sat on the text 
This week, I was met by a few ideas that I think give good counsel to us. One reformer said that Jesus, having just ended his great sermon, again, that Olivet Discourse, now mixes it with prayer to show that prayer is what makes the truth of his word most profitable, uh, that its power with our hearts comes from above. I think that's a fine observation. There was another, Horatius Bonar, who I think, though unspecific to John 17, yet hits a certain mark with his poetry. He goes like this, I stand upon the mount of God with sunlight in my soul. I hear the storms and veils beneath. I hear the thunders roll. But I am calm with thee, my God, beneath these glorious skies. And to the height on which I stand... No storms, no clouds can rise. Oh, this is life. Oh, this is joy. My God, to find thee so. Thy face to see, thy voice to hear, and all thy love to know. And then perhaps most straightforwardly, I appreciated the words of an old Scottish Pastor Robert Murray McShane, he put it this way. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, the title of the sermon, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. (laughs) Do we live by this reality? We talk quite a lot of Christ's intercession for us on the cross, and rightly so. But what about His intercession for us upon the throne of God above right now? I hope if I reached out to you to tell you that I had prayed for you, you'd find some real encouragement in that. But what then, what then, if I went on to tell you, as I can tell you, that Jesus, the risen Jesus, is continually praying for you? And that here in our text, we have a bit of how that might go, and that in hearing it, we ought to find the very sturdiest steps for following our dearly departed Lord Jesus. Let's come to our text. And first up, the primary concern of Jesus, and that's the glory of the Father in the Son while on earth, and this is going to be 95% of our message, okay? You know, we have a time uh, just before this service, we call it Word and Prayer, it's at 9.40, you hear us advertise it all the time, if you need another advertisement for it, what we have here, if you remember from the beginning of John's Gospel, is quite powerfully the Word praying, (laughs) the Word incarnate praying. It's really wonderful to think on it, and in doing so, to be spurred ourselves into meaningful prayer, meaningful prayer. A lot of times you know uh, our praying is anything but meaningful in that sense. It can be more of a self-centered plea that's restricted to times of hopeless desperation where we lift up our voice into a void just hoping someone or something is somewhere up there on the other side to sort of catch it and then provide some good fortune out of it. Just wishing upon a star. But as we gather around the Word praying, the Son praying, Jesus praying, we are blessed to see something else entirely. Jesus had needs, 
But he isn't just praying because of those needs, not like we might pray because of them. This is a perfect man here. This is not a fallen man like you and I might be. He's a perfect man here, and yet he's praying. It's not the realization of his frail humanity that first presses him into prayer, and we're not to think either that he lifts his eyes to heaven here simply to provide a portrait for future stained glass windows, right? If you've ever seen those in sanctuaries. Uh, He doesn't look heavenward here because it looks all pious and holy and that's what Jesus is supposed to look like. He doesn't look heavenward thinking no one's home. He looks there because as far as we can grasp it, that's where His Father is. To see Jesus praying is to be assured by the Son of God there is someone on the other side. We don't pray into a hopeless void. (laughs) We don't ask of nothing and no one. There is a God on the throne. We have a Father who is in heaven. There is a good and gracious King who, as our church affirmation says, hears and answers prayer. What we see then in Jesus praying is the perfect man driven to it by the rightest longing simply for communion with his Father. To communicate his heart to him in an expectantly answerable way. And are we not to learn from that as his onlooking disciples? Are we not to be spurred on in meaningful, biblical prayer? Are we not to find incredible encouragement? We have a Father in heaven. He hears us. He answers us. Are we not to find incredible amounts of encouragement for when we do pray? And certainly as we do, another great lesson we can learn from Jesus is about what should concern us most as His disciples. And so if you look carefully at the end of verse 1, you'll hear the primary concern of Jesus in prayer, and this also in His perfect view of existence, plain and simple. He says that the hour has come, and upon it He now prays. Glorify your Son, but He doesn't stop there. How does He continue? Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So, what's the concern of Jesus above every other concern? It is the glory of the Father in the Son as He finishes out His course on earth. It's the glory of God in Christ, we might say. There is nothing more important than that to Jesus. And again, then, there's not supposed to be anything more important than that for you and for me either. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31? What does he say there? But that in all we do, whether we eat or drink, sip on the coffee you have right now, whether we do that or this or whatever, we're to do it, go ahead, all for the glory of of God. And so nothing in our lives is supposed to be left on an island of self-glory. 
We're to bring everything under the banner of dignifying God as God and as such displaying His soul-saving and satisfying beauty or glory. So yes, wonderfully, there is a way, there is a way to redeem ramen for breakfast, which my daughter has started to do. And if that can be done to the glory of God, what can't be done to the glory of God? In all seriousness, the Bible does want us to keep a primary concern, a chief regard in our hearts. And it's this, does this, will this, whatever it is, deny or dignify, mar or magnify our Father's character, word, reputation, glory. We are saved. If you're saved, you have been saved because our Lord's whole life, Jesus' whole life, was lived right there. My Father's glory all the time. That's what He was about without committing one sin. And so we come now to parse out some particulars of what Jesus asks in these verses. Jesus is asking the Father to glorify Him that He might glorify the Father. I want you to notice there that their glory is one thing. It's not two things. It's one thing, right? It's a shared and coordinate glory. The glory of the Father advances, we might say, upon the glory of Christ, His Son. Which is what makes the first particular so wildly spectacular. In effect, Jesus wants God to be glorified. He wants His Father to be glorified in the cross of Christ. Maybe you recall this from our time in this Gospel, but when it speaks of the coming hour, as He says at the beginning here, the hour has come. It's a reference to the hour that God has appointed for Jesus to suffer and then to die the most wretched death of his cross. So, unless he's asking God to be glorified and giving him what he deserves, which we know he's not, because he doesn't deserve what that cross ends up being, this doesn't make any sense to lost souls to ask the Father to glorify himself in the death of the Son. I mean, apart from the light of grace, people look at Christ crucified as anything but the wisdom, the power, the glory, and even the very visage of God as the just justifier of sinners who believe, though that is precisely what it is. But nature can't see that. Fallen nature cannot see that. It only sees a sad tale, maybe a notable example, or just plain weakness and folly, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But the glory and splendor of God in Christ, it does not ever see. And that's because it takes grace for the truth to shine through. I grant it is an odd thing at first to hear Jesus ask God to be glorified in all that we know the cross to be and contain for Him. And yet I want you to see how Jesus connects it in verse 2 to His sovereign and saving authority in the world. 
In essence, Jesus is asking the Father to be glorified in showing Him and His death on the cross to be the sovereign achievement of our salvation. That's what He's asking. Now, we're going to dive further into that momentarily, but that's the thrust of His initial ask here, is that God Himself would be revealed, think about this, in the death of Christ. And that God Himself would reveal it. It's been decided from all eternity. He spoke of it. You remember this from our time in our Advent series. He spoke of it in Genesis 3.15 after we had stumbled and fallen headlong into sin. He has done nothing uh, if not amplify the good news to this point throughout the history of man and the whole of the Bible. Yes, of course, it is contrary to our sinful minds and our prideful hearts, but that's just because the method of our redemption is truly and not just purportedly, divine in origin. It's divine. It's not of man. So it doesn't work the way we think it would. The cross upon which Jesus died in order to save us sinners, the awful justice of God, the cross upon which He crushed His own Son for our sake is of divine wisdom, divine execution, divine power, and divine effect. And do you know why? Very simple. It's that God might have all the glory for it. (laughs) He will not give His glory to anybody else. Not an ounce of it. It's that He would have all the glory for doing what you and I could, would, never do for ourselves. It's that He might be glorified for who He is. And that is the only Savior of sinners. So, what friend do you see when you look at the cross of Christ? What do you see in Christ crucified? Maybe the better question is what should you see? What is there to see? Well, to see more and better, we need to move ahead. Jesus wants the Father glorified in the cross of Christ. He wants the cross to be revealed for what it truly is, which brings us to the authority of Christ. There too, Jesus would see the Father glorified in His exercise of His authority. What's astounding to see, indeed I don't know that we can unsee it in verse 2, is that the authority of Christ, if you look there, is the authority of God. Or at least, it's the God-given authority over all the world of man. So even then and there, He's about to go to the cross. Even then and there, Jesus is the King of kings. You know, it's interesting how this happens, but in our youth meetings on Wednesday nights, uh, we've been studying the book of Daniel. And as you may know, there's a king in Daniel named Nebuchadnezzar, and he thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. He thinks he's the greatest king there is. In fact, Daniel at one point calls him the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that terrifies him, and it terrifies him because it is a divine revelation that he is not the greatest. It terrifies him because he's not the king of kings after all that his kingdom will come to an end and it will finally, ultimately give way to a king and a kingdom that will never end. 
And he can feel the authority and the certainty of that message in his bones. And so he's trembling, he's terrified on account of it. And what we see here then in our passage is an admission by Jesus that he is that king. And that his kingdom is that everlasting kingdom. He makes no bones about it. As one put it, quote, listen to this, everything and everyone in the universe is subject to Jesus and his kingdom, whether that point is acknowledged by people or not. So, from calling people to himself, to healing people, to feeding people, John 6, to maintaining, resuscitating life, to resurrecting life. You think about Lazarus in John 11, to controlling the time of his death. No one can kill him before he's ready to give up his life. That's what we've seen in the Gospel of John, isn't it? Everything finally bows to Jesus. But we know, don't we, that what makes His authority uniquely radiant with the glory of God is how despite the sovereignty that it entails, despite the power that it implies, Jesus exercises His authority for the salvation of His people. He's the good and gracious King of kings. What would you or I do with such authority? Authority over all the world. Would we, John 10, 18, use that authority to save in real time our enemies by laying down our lives for them? Knowing that we had all authority and dominion, would we be able to endure the sinful abuses of authority against us? Knowing all had been committed to us, that all were truly subjected to us by God, would we have committed ourselves to God's care and submitted ourselves to the God-hating rage of a sinful world? When we could have commanded worship, Would we have consigned ourselves to reign from the tree in order to win their hearts and save their souls? Because you see, that's how Jesus used his authority. We need to be very clear now. For what reason? Did God give such universal authority to Jesus? What does Jesus say? Into verse 2, back half of verse 2. To give eternal life to all, this is where we need to be very clear, whom you, Father, have given me. God gave Jesus authority to save His people. In other words, God placed the keys of heaven in the hands of Christ. Now this takes us a good bit deeper, I think, down the authority train. 
authority chain, authority train. I want you to see, beloved, that without blushing or choking on his spit, Jesus says he was given all authority not to save everybody. But to save that yet, as we know from Revelation 7, yet that innumerable multitude of the elect of God are all those that the Father gave to the Son. That's what he just said, verse 2. To them, Jesus held authority to give eternal life. He was given authority over all the world, he says, to do what was necessary to obtain eternal life for them and then go on at the right time to give them, to apply to them what he obtained for them. In short, Jesus is the sovereign Savior of his people. Beloved, the intent is to say that to the glory of God here, there is nothing in the world of man, nothing in the world of hearts that can prevent Jesus from saving whomever He wills. To the world, God has given a Savior, really. And still, to the Savior, God has given a people to save out of the world. And by the authority vested in Him, Christ will not fail to do so. Do you need what the cross provides? The answer is yes. And Jesus has exercised His authority to provide that. Do you need divine life in your souls to even begin to trust that? (laughs) Again, the answer is yes. And Jesus has authority to give that also according to the will of the Father. So let's not begrudge. Let's not begrudge that any more than we might a man saying that, listen, all that I am as a husband, all that I have to give, I give to my bride and no other woman. And you hear that, you go, that is laudable. You hear that about Jesus and we kind of go, I don't know if I like that so much. But that's this. Let's not think ourselves wiser or kinder than the great cross bearer. I assure you that we're not wiser or kinder than him. I can also assure you that his bride is beyond counting. I can also assure you that his sovereign grace, far from doing what we think it might, does not keep him from coming into the world and doing everything that was required, including obeying, preaching, discipling, evangelizing, praying, dying, rising, etc., to bring it all about. It did not cancel out his personal responsibility to accomplish salvation. And God, he's saying, is glorified in that. He's also glorified then in the gift of Christ. What the exercise of his authority on the cross and within our hearts does provide us, and that is specifically eternal life. And I do want it to be clear here, again, the authority of Christ relates to the accomplishment of the cross, but also the application of it to our hearts. And perhaps verse 3 will help us here. 
Uh, Jesus has said that he has all authority finally to give eternal life to his people, and then he gives us a specific definition of that gift in verse 3. You see that? And this is eternal life. We all have it memorized now because of what George did at the beginning of service. This is eternal life. That they, his people, that they is his people, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so right off the bat, we may just need to improve our understanding of what eternal life is. You see, Jesus does not say, this is eternal life, arrival in heaven. That's not what he says. He defines eternal life not just in terms of a future quantity of life, but of a present quality of life. One that believers apparently already possess. In New Covenant terms, it's knowing God in Christ. And while, of course, knowledge is included in that, we're not talking about mere knowledge. We're talking about vital, personal, covenantal knowing. It's the kind of knowledge that all the elect are going to have. It's the sort of knowledge that the disciples that are gathered around Him right now do have. They know Him. Indeed, I think we can say it's the life Jesus brought into the world and displayed in His own life. This convictional, uncompromising heart obedience to the Word of God that walked in love toward every single soul. I want you to remember this, right from John 11. He is what? The resurrection and the life. Such that even His most ardent detractors could only acknowledge that fact when He raised Lazarus from the dead, though it seemed very ahead of schedule. Eternal life had broken into this world. What I'm trying to say is that eternal life, as Jesus understand it, understands it, is the gift of God for now and later. It's not a gift received just at the end. It's the inbreaking of divine life within a soul today. Eternal life is this irreversible onset of salvation, beginning in the new birth, beginning in regeneration, and then finishing out in glorification. Or, if we can borrow from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, if you want to write that one down and look at it later, it's the change that takes place in a person when under the words of the gospel, God, Paul says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Shines in our hearts to give the light, listen now, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Doesn't that sound a lot like what Jesus is saying here in John 17, 3? Let's deal then with what he does actually say. He says eternal life is knowing the only true God by way of Jesus Christ, whom the only true God sent into the world for that revelatory purpose. In other words, Jesus implies what the Bible plainly says elsewhere, that apart from this gift of Christ, we do not know the only true God. 
That's not how we come into the world. We're spiritually ignorant, without knowledge, this knowledge, and blind, and even dead, Ephesians 2. Until we're born again, we live for sin. We're devoted to counterfeit gods. We give our lives to it. Money and power and all these things. Our soul is a wasteland from birth. The first birth. Our hearts are like the devil's playground. And so as Jesus defines it, eternal life is this decisive discontinuance. Hear that. A decisive discontinuance of the sinful life that we know won't end, but in this awful judgment of God against us. And so it is at the same time this glorious invasion of new resurrection life. It's the life of God in the soul of man. As one once put it. And yet just there we need to be clearest of all. Eternal life is knowing the only True God. But then defining the only true God is not then left up to you and me. He's not a God of our own making. He's the unmade God who's delighted to reveal Himself supremely in Jesus Christ. Oh, friend, listen, the only true God there is, the one you must know to be known as an heir of eternal life, He is not aloof, He is not hidden, He is not darkened. He has revealed Himself. You don't need to go searching. He's in the Bible. He's revealed Himself there, fully and specifically and supremely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what I want you to hear there is that it is not possible to know this God in just any old way you choose. The only way is through the revelation that He's made of Himself in Jesus. Now, the really great news about that is that you can really know the only true God. You can know Him. He's not unknown. Eternal life in the end is the gift of seeing the truth about Jesus such that you can't but go on to repent of your sins and entrust your soul's salvation to His death on the cross. If today you have believed that, if you love God and love Christ with all your heart, you're not only a future heir of eternal life, you are defined by eternal life right now. Does it define you? You know, one of the great things that comes about by this definition of eternal life is the assurance it can give our souls. From day to day, morning, noon, night. Oh, I love Christ. <laughs> I love Christ. I love His people. I love His Word. I want to grow in grace. I long for others to know Him also. And I pray they do. And so on and so forth. And we can step back from that and say, well, would you look at that? 
I have eternal life. By grace, I have it already. My life assures of life beyond the grave. That's crazy. Awesome. I'm being reminded that grace is just glory begun. And glory is but grace completed. I imagine the disciples found all kinds of comfort in overhearing Jesus say these words in John 17, 3. And my hope and prayer is that you'll find such comfort as well. But the more central point of Christ is that eternal life is His gift to give on the basis of His work on the cross. By His death, He obtained both it and us to make the match between the two at the appropriate time. You're a Christian, if you're a Christian, because the living Christ Himself has personally applied the purchase of His cross to you. And as He and His authority and His work and His grace are from the Father, the Father also then is glorified in Christ. And it's only to enhance that further that Jesus then adds His confidence to the mix. Right? Like, how devastating would it be for us to hear all that we've just heard, only to hear Jesus now say, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I glorified you on earth. I mean, I might have had a few missteps along the way, here and there, but for the most part, that's not what He says in verse 4. He says, to bless our confidence. In Him. I glorified you on earth. Having what? Go ahead. Accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That is a very bold statement. We're not talking about making tires here. No offense to any of you who make tires. We used to have a Member here, student who graduated and now he makes tires and so that's just what came to mind. It's a glorious work, Ian Carson, if you're out there somewhere in the, the void of the internet. Um, we're not talking about that. We're, we're talking about the redemption of the world here. We're talking about the work of the Messiah, the Christ. We're talking about all that was necessary to be done in order for the cross to actually then be the cross. All the stuff that had to be done for His death to be the death of death. All the stuff that had to be done in order for us to be eternal lifers. And ahead of the cross, it's coming, we're not there yet. Ahead of it, speaking of it as if it also is an accomplished fact of history. Talk about confident and bold. Jesus says from His lips to our hearts, I have done it all. There's not one thing the Father ordained for Him that Jesus has left undone. Oh, just think about it. It's no wonder if we offer the gift of Christ, eternal life, so freely but faintly, if we hardly know all that went on in making that gift so freely available to us. 
It's not like he just poof came into the world and then died on a cross. Dear ones, the cross is not the cross without, say, the infinite humility of his incarnation. God becoming a man. Without his active and perfect obedience. Without his fighting tooth and nail for that undefeated heart that we don't have. Without all his God-revealing works, as we've seen them in John's Gospel, and all those words that never spoke anything other than what the Father wanted said because he was the Word of God, without his being the Word, the light, the light, the Son, in every way, the Savior of the world. All that was required is included in these words. John 17, 4. Memorize that one. He did it all. This is right here. This is, it is finished. Before, it is finished. And see again, it's all to the glory of God. I have glorified you on earth. Church, I do not know that we can find sweeter words than John 17, 4 anywhere else in the Bible. Let the body of Christ take confidence in the confidence of our head. As we have hoped in Him, we have landed upon God's rock of salvation. To His glory, our souls are secure as secure can be in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's done it. Now, all of that, you're going to love this. All of that is point one. And that's okay because point two just means to lead us into next week and so we can be short with it. But it is critical, so hear it here. Point one was about Jesus' primary concern, the glory of God in Christ on earth. Point two is about Jesus' intercessory concern by the resumption of His glory in heaven. So verse five, if you look there, He says, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence, with the glory, pay special attention here, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Who is our Savior? Who is this guy? Who can talk like that? All I really want us to do with that right now is gather a basic sense of what he's just asked. You see, it is the next request in the text. But I think there's more than initially meets the eye in it. Of course, there's this mind-blowing confession that the man Jesus <laughs> understands himself to have pre-existed the world. That he, liberal theology and its offshoots beware, even shared in the glory of God from all eternity. That he who was about to have his body torn and his blood spilled and his life forfeited for you and me, was himself nothing less than God the Son. 
There's that the soon-to-be-crucified one, despised and rejected by sinners like us, would shortly after be received by God to stand again uncovered in His essential glory. But then we need to realize, we need to realize that in doing so, He is not asking to have His humanity removed. What's He asking? He's asking to have His divinity again shine through it. In the incarnation, the Son of God took on our nature from that point moving forward forever. He did not leave His humanity behind when He arose from the dead and ascended to heaven. He didn't leave us behind when He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Remember, He's just spent a great deal of time preparing them for what? I'm leaving and going to the Father. His departure. But as they then are now to remain in the world for Him, what do His disciples, what do we need to know most of all but that out of sight does not mean out of mind, heart, or touch. There is a man seated upon the throne of God. A man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. And as He interceded for us on the cross, so right now He is interceding for us upon that throne. We look there by faith in this Word and we find our Savior who is now able to sympathize with us because He did not put off our humanity. We find one able to sympathize with us. We find our forerunner who lives to assure us that is our destiny too. To have this access to God forever. We have one who is now able as a human being, both God and man, fully so, both of them, who can save you and me to the uttermost and make us meet for His desire that we would see His glory. How? You're going to see it at the end of John 17. See His glory face to face. He's got a face. So beloved, His ministry toward us is not over simply because He's not on earth. It continues this very second and it will not stop until the wait is over and our eyes, our eyes, behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, what will you do with that? Will you be pressed into greater degrees of meaningful prayer? Will you find peace like the poem above all the storms of life? Will you take courage, as McShane said, for Christ? Oh, golly. 
If we could hear, if we could hear Christ praying for us in the next room, what would we ever fear? Yet, distance makes no difference. He is praying for us. Let's join Him in that. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. Oh, help our hearts to find oh, joy divine, comfort divine, peace divine. Move in our hearts, and not just as individuals, but as a church body, move in our collective heart so that we would become a people to the glory of of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift that you have given to us in Him and in eternal life. And we praise you that even now we know on the basis of your word, He is interceding for us. Oh, help our hearts to find all they need right there. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.